Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, the book of Revelation, chapter two. I want to prepare you for what's coming today and for the next few weeks as we study the letters to the seven believing congregations. It is divine judgment of Christ's disciples and his institutions. Now I don't imagine you've probably thought of it that way before, but that is precisely what it is about. These seven letters are not to the world. They are not threats or condemnation aimed at pagans. These sometimes scathing rebukes, often coupled with a good report for doing well in some regards, are to believers. God is pronouncing his judgment over these seven congregations, just as he pronounced judgment over disobedient Israel in times past. But whenever there was judgment, there was also warning, usually accompanied with a path to deliverance if the warning is heeded. And so we find that same dynamic in these seven letters. Only two congregations are regarded as fully commendable. Two. All the rest have problems of varying degrees from serious to grave. And some are in danger of having their light extinguished altogether. And while these letters are indeed specifically tailored, delivered to seven distinct congregations, what God has to say about them can be applied universally to all believers and groups of believers. This means that you and I are going to have to be ready and open to use these pronouncements of divine judgment and commendation as a mirror to look soberly into and see our own reflection as both individuals and as a corporate body. Now one, uh, one other note. Already in Revelation, we are seeing why interpretation and understanding of this book is so challenging and complex. With the greatest reason being that most, but not all, of what we will encounter in the months ahead is unfulfilled prophecy. We even find unexpected and differing characterizations of the Godhead than what we have found in earlier books that makes it harder for us to visualize or to comprehend exactly which of those persons of the Godhead is speaking or is being spoken about. How do we deal with this as truth seekers? Well, we should begin by taking a collective deep breath 
and surrendering to the reality that what we're experiencing and will experience even more once we complete the study of the, of the letters to the seven believing congregations starting in chapter 2 is nothing short of what the Israelites of old experienced as they awaited their Messiah. Perhaps we have much more in common with them than we ever imagined. As Solomon once said, there is nothing new under the sun. Now I wonder if we can envision what it must have been like for the Israelites as they tried with great effort to decipher the writings of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah the other great prophets. On the one hand, these prophets of God spoke about a conquering Davidic king, a king Messiah, whose great prowess as a warrior leader delivers Israel from under the oppressive thumb of a Gentile world empire into a glorious Israelite kingdom. And on the other hand, they spoke words about this same Messiah being humiliated, suffering, and dying. One time he's a lion, the next time he's a lamb. How can both possibly be true? Could their prophets have been mistaken? Their religious leaders, oh, they struggled to explain this seeming paradox. And they did so with a number of imaginative solutions. Over the centuries, those solutions and interpretations about the coming Messiah became inviolable Jewish doctrines that were accepted as truth. Even though, sadly, they were mostly incorrect and had the people looking for the wrong things. So when their Messiah finally did arrive amidst the, the prophesied events that were to announce his coming, can we blame the bulk of the common Jewish folk for failing to recognize those events? Or him? See, what was mystery for them is revealed in the rear view mirror of history for us. So here's what we need to take from this. Too many mysteries about unfulfilled prophecy and revelation have been transformed into confident facts by Christian religious scholars and writers. And these facts that are often merely assumptions are invariably the result of working to make the words of revelation fit into this already established set of beliefs about the end times. And I'm here to tell you we're no different than those ancient Israelites who also sincerely believed God and, and also sincerely sought to understand what their prophets told them about what lay ahead. But if Bible history has taught us anything it is that we can really only be certain about some of the important details of unfulfilled prophecy once they've actually happened and they become hindsight. So let's face some more mysteries today 
And when needed, let's remember what those precious words actually say. Even if we can't currently imagine how they can possibly happen the way they appear in the Bible. Otherwise, we're going to risk mistakenly identifying some current event as prophetic when they're not. Or being blind to actual unfolding prophetic events when they happen because they don't meet our expectations. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1534. 1534. We'll read it all. To the angel of the Messianic community in Ephesus write... Here is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold menorahs. I know what you've been doing, how hard you've worked, how you've persevered, how you can't stand wicked people. So you tested those who called themselves emissaries but aren't. And you found them to be liars. You are persevering and you have suffered for my sake without growing weary. But I have this against you. You've lost the love you had at first. Therefore, remember where you were before you fell and turn from this sin and do what you used to do before. Otherwise, I'll come to you and remove your menorah from its place if you don't turn from your sin. But you have this in your favor. You hate what the Nicolaitans do. I hate it too. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To him winning the victory, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's Gan Eden, Garden of Eden. Now to the angel of the Messianic community in Smyrna write, Here is the message from the first and the last who died and came alive again. I know how you are suffering, how poor you are, although in fact you are rich. And I know the insults of those who call themselves Jews but aren't. On the contrary, they're a synagogue of the adversary. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the adversary is going to have some of you thrown in prison in order to put you to the test, and you will face an ordeal for ten days. Now remain faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your crown. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. He who wins the victory will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now to the angel of the Messianic community in Pergamum write, Here is the message from the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you're living. There where the adversary's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name. You did not uh, deny trusting me even at the time when my faithful witness Antipas was put to death in your town, there where the adversary lives. Nevertheless, I, I have a few things against you. You have some people who hold to the teaching of Bilam, who told Balak to set a trap for the people of Israel so that they would eat food that had been sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual sin. Likewise, you too have other people who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, turn from these sins. Otherwise, I'll come to you very soon and I will make war against them with the spirit of my mouth. With the sword of my mouth, rather. 
Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To him winning the victory, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone on which is written a new name that nobody knows except the one receiving it. Now to the angel of the Messianic community in Thyatira write, Here is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like a fiery flame, whose feet are like burnished brass. I know what you are doing. Your love, trust, service, perseverance. I know that you are doing more now than before. But I have this against you. You continue to tolerate that Jezebel woman, the one who claims to be a prophet, but is teaching and deceiving my servants to commit sexual sin and to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to turn from her sin. She doesn't want to repent of her immorality. So I'm throwing her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing into great trouble unless they turn from the sins connected with what she does. And I will strike her children dead. Then all the Messianic communities will know I am the one who searches minds and hearts. I will give to each of you what your, disease, what your deeds deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some people call the deep things of the adversary, I say this, I'm not loading you up with another burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To him who wins the victory, who does what I want until the goal is reached, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule with them, rule them with an iron staff and dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Those who have ears... Let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. One of those mysteries we discussed at the beginning of today's lesson confronts us immediately in the first verse of chapter 2 when we read To the angel of the Messianic community in Ephesus write here is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden menorahs. The mystery is this. Who or what is the angel of the messianic community in Ephesus? Now the reason this is a mystery is because what sense does it make for John to be writing to a heavenly angel? Thus, the majority of Christian commentators say this cannot be a heavenly angel, but rather it's only a human messenger. Or that John is only speaking figuratively, perhaps metaphorically, even fancifully, about this so-called angel. We're going to discuss this at some length because it speaks to the credibility of the vision itself or to the reliability of what John has recorded for us perhaps both now first is that most Christian commentators insist this is not a heavenly angel it's a human messenger 
And on its face, this is a reasonable viewpoint. In fact, some Bible translations, such as Young's literal translation, actually use the word messenger instead of the word angel. This is because the Greek word being translated into angel is agalos. And indeed, it means messenger. Therefore, it can legitimately indicate either a heavenly messenger that we call an angel or a common human messenger. Now, agalos is attempting to translate the Hebrew word malach, which behaves exactly the same way. Malach means messenger, heavenly or human. The proper uh, translation and interpretation then depends on the context. So either way, we read it in our Bible. The translation of Agalos to English, angel or messenger, is good and accurate. Therefore, let me frame this problem simply. Is John actually writing to an angel? Or is he writing to a human messenger that is associated with that believing congregation in Ephesus? Now, a knee-jerk reaction for most people would be, of course, that messenger is a human, not a spirit being. For one thing, could a human instruct an angel? And for another, if such a thing was possible, would it really be done using pen and paper? So let's look at the strengths and weaknesses of each possibility. The human messenger viewpoint is the easiest to assume because it makes sense. And it does fit properly with the Greek word agalos, by the way, sometimes written as angeloi. So what might this human messenger be in relation to the, to the local congregation? What's an agalos for a local congregation? There is no mention in the New Testament outside the mention of such messengers in the letters to the seven congregations of any office or position within any local assembly of believers that's called an agalos. Christian commentators who hold the view that this is a human messenger say that this must be a pastor or an elder. However, nowhere else in the New Testament is a bishop, a pastor, an elder, any kind of assembly leader called an agalos, a messenger. Nor do we find agalos used this way elsewhere within Revelation. Now especially the words bishop and elder were common words describing common offices. So why not just use those words? Further, in no document outside of the Bible do we find the use of agalos to describe a church office or a church position. Then we have the issue of what came just before John's mention of the angel of the congregation of Ephesus. I want you to be looking at your Bibles here. 
Alright, take a look at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. Follow along with me. To end chapter 1, the divine being that is giving John this vision, who most believe is Christ, explains that the seven stars he holds in his hand are the seven angels, seven agalos of the seven believing assemblies. Why would the definition of the term agalos change from a heavenly messenger to a human messenger just a few words later? Now, because our modern Bibles are organized using chapters and verses, I don't care what version you have, you have a Bible that is organized in chapters and verses. But because they're used this way, it appears to us subconsciously that there's this pause, there's this separation at the end of chapter 1 and then the beginning of chapter 2. So it feels like we have one thought process ending and a different thought process beginning. But no such thing as chapter and verse markings or separations existed in John's day. Nor would it for another 15 centuries. Rather, the last sentence of chapter 1 and the first sentence of chapter 2 just ran together. They were one continuous thought process. So in reality, there's no separation. So, Again, look at your Bibles. We need to read the final part of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 this way. Here is the secret meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold menorahs. The seven stars are the angels, this means heavenly angels, of the seven messianic communities and the seven menorahs are the seven messianic communities. To the angel of the messianic community in Ephesus, right? Now that sounds a lot different, doesn't it? All right, than just putting this uh, this pause in between that isn't there. It's only there because of the invention of chapters and verses. So when we do that, it's much easier to see this firm connection between the word angel in chapter one, verse twenty, and chapter two, verse one. So now let's follow the path of how the use of the word angel in verse 1 of chapter 2 might mean heavenly angel as opposed to a human messenger. Now the term stars, aster in Greek and kochav in Hebrew, that are self-defined for us in the final verse of chapter 1, are used throughout the Old Testament as referring either to an actual light up in the sky or as being symbolic for heavenly angels or spirit beings of some sort. It is not used to refer to a human being of any office. We also find that virtually everywhere else in Revelation that the term agalos is used, it means heavenly angel. And yet, where else in the Bible other than Revelation 
do we find any such hint that specific angels are assigned as some kind of supervisor or guardian over an assembly of God worshippers? The answer is we don't. Then we have the issue of the message process. That is, of the divine vision being telling John to give this message to a heavenly angel by means of writing it. The Greek for write is grapho. And it indeed means to write by conventional means. So there's no error in translation or in understanding the term's meaning. Nonetheless, several early church fathers, such as Origen, had no problem accepting the angels means angels concept. Later on, however, Theodore Zahn, a noted New Testament Bible commentator, bluntly gives the view of the majority of Christian Bible commentators when responding to the question by saying this, this view first found in the writings of Origen should be rejected because it is absurd that the Lord would make his will to the spirits make his will known to the spirits which like himself belong to the invisible heavenly world through the agency of John a being of this earth and that they should learn of this will only as unseen visitors at the meetings of the churches when John's book is read. Speaking of the book of Revelation. So let's approach this problem from another angle. The term agalos, again messenger, angel, occurs 165 times in the New Testament. 67 of those times are in Revelation. Of those 67 times in Revelation, 56 times they are direct references to heavenly angels. It is so self-evident from the context there is no scholarly debate over this. In three additional instances, Agalos refers to Satan or to his minions. That leaves nine times that the term agalos is used where its meaning is disputed. And this is in regard to Revelation chapter 1 and then to the letters of the seven believing assemblies. Throughout the remainder of the New Testament, only four times out of that 165, only four times is the term agalos translated to mean a human messenger whereby it seems clear enough that there is no scholarly dispute over the meaning. But in those four instances, never does the term have anything to do with a congregation or a pastor or an elder, and none of the human messengers are entrusted with God's word, nor are they told to communicate it to a person or to a group. So the bottom line is, the scriptural evidence leans heavily towards the angel of the assembly at Ephesus as well to the angels to the other six assemblies being heavenly, not human. It is primarily human logic, doctrine, 
that these cannot be real angels because they don't fit the mold of angels that theologians have constructed over the centuries. But what I want to remind you of is that already in chapter 1 we saw some pretty significant deviations from the norm we'd come to expect from both the Old and New Testaments about the descriptions of the very nature and forms of the Godhead. I mean, commentaries and church doctrines really tend to gloss over these deviations. Just as they tend to declare that John's angels are actually human beings. Because otherwise, what is traditionally thought and taught from pulpits and theological schools about angels and spirit beings that would have to be rethought and reworked. Now, although we're not going to get into the enormous subject of angelology, the study and doctrines of angels and demons, which is present in the theology, by the way, of both Judaism and Christianity, I can sum it up by saying this. <laughs> There's only scant information in the Holy Scriptures about angels or demons. There's almost nothing there. What most people think they know about angels and demons comes nearly exclusively from the human imagination. Often borrowed from pagan ideas. But has over the centuries become etched in stone into our religious doctrines. So beware. This is another area where we can be easily deceived and knocked off track. And as I just said before we read Revelation chapter 2, in cases involving these kinds of difficult mysteries, very challenging, it is often best to simply believe what is written in the Bible even though our minds cannot square it with what we've always thought or mentally pictured as possible or even rational. The angels of the seven believing communities are seven heavenly angels. And John is being asked to deliver God's judgment of each of these seven assemblies through the angels who have something to do with them. I don't know why this is the process. But there is nothing unbelievable about it except that it doesn't agree with what so many theologians have decided. What they've taught us we ought to believe about this instead. Well, Ephesus is a congregation that had been personally mentored by Paul. And of course, is the subject of his letter to the Ephesians that in time became a New Testament book. The well-known evangelists of the gospel, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos, they lived there. They worked hard to disciple the believers of Ephesus. We also read in the book of Acts about Paul's close call in Ephesus and about how the goddess, goddess rather Artemis, also known as Diana, was the patron god of the city. 
Ephesus had a substantial Jewish population and at the same time it was regarded as the main center of Hellenistic culture and of pagan idolatry in Asia. This explains why it was a target for evangelizing by the early Jewish believers and it drew special attention by Paul. So it's no surprise that the assembly at Ephesus would play a prominent role in Revelation as one of the seven congregations that God directly addressed. Now the message to Ephesus begins by identifying the one who is giving John the divine vision. And yet, we still don't get a name or even a familiar title for the message giver. Rather, we see the same set of characteristics that were given to in chapter 1. It is the one who holds the seven stars, the seven heavenly angels, in his right hand and walks among the menorahs, the believing congregations. The repeat mention of the right hand is because in the ancient world, the right hand was the hand of power and authority. So this divine message giver says he has power and authority over those seven angels. God begins by commending the Ephesus leadership by saying that he knows what they've been doing, how they've persevered, how they will not tolerate wicked people, how they tested those who claimed to be apostles of Christ, found some of them to be false, to be liars. Now, in the context of believers living in the most idolatrous and heathen city in Asia, the Ephesus assembly has been paid a great compliment. And while these words are directly aimed at the congregation of Ephesus, modern believers need to learn from this as well. Belief in Christ as Lord and Savior is, in our time, on the wane throughout the West. The only places in the world where it is growing are the Far East, Africa, and to some degree in South America. It has not been very difficult in the West to persevere as a believer. Western culture was built on Judeo-Christian ethics and traditions. But those days are fading rapidly. In contrast, being a believer in Ephesus was very difficult. You were a tiny minority. You were even seen as an insulter of the Grecian gods that the majority of society worshipped. Believers in Ephesus were anything but popular. They were the oddballs. But in the popularity-driven West, where secular humanism reigns supreme, it isn't cool to be a Christian anymore. Oftentimes believers are looked at with suspicion. We now have presidents and prime ministers openly declaring that such beliefs in the God of the Bible are ignorant and has little place in modern progressive societies as much more than warmly remembered relics. 
And what's the response of Western Christianity to such a great threat? Generally speaking, it's been surrender. Unfortunately, too often, this surrender has led to the watering down of the gospel, relegating the Bible to a book of passive religious philosophy, and doing everything possible to make God more attractive by turning him into a genie-like character that makes all our wishes come true. And a buddy, a buddy whose goal is to make our lives as happy as possible. Notice how the Ephesus assembly was also commended for refusing to tolerate wicked people, for testing self-proclaimed apostles only to find them as false. How did the Ephesians define wicked people? How did they discern true apostles from the many liars? What did they turn to so that they would know what was wicked versus what was godly and what was true? The only source available to them, the Old Testament. The New Testament would not be created for more than a century after the death of John the Apostle. See, these false apostles who came as wolves in sheep's clothing were not pagans. Because no testing would have been needed to recognize them. Rather, these lying apostles held themselves up as believers who were teaching new truths. And clearly they came with sufficient credentials and a good enough story that testing was needed to determine their veracity because what could be determined by those credentials couldn't be counted upon to avoid deception. Now the lesson for modern believers is this. If we don't personally know God's word, we have lost our only means to test people, spirits, and yes, pastors and theologians. Many church denominations and seminaries have mostly replaced actual Bible knowledge with man-made doctrines said to interpret God's word. Others, as with the Ephesian congregation, have held tightly to God's word as their litmus test for truth. It is each believer's responsibility to determine which they or their congregational leadership rely on for truth. The actual word of God as we find it in our Bibles or doctrines and traditions insisted upon by Christian religious leaders. Which one's it going to be? Well, after being commended, the Ephesians are judged as having lost the love they had at first. Now, often this passage is cited as, you have lost your first love. And that first love is said to be Christ. Now, while first love is an acceptable translation, it's 
its English come from, comes from the Old English. That actually means the love you had at first. Because of the influence of eroticism upon the church, first love can wrongly be taken to mean something like puppy love. Or the first person we had a real crush on or a passionate love for. Therefore, in such a case, first love would refer to a specific person. Rather, what's meant here is that while the Ephesians dug in against that constant onslaught of false apostles and they mightily resisted the never-ending pressures of the local pagan society and while they hung on with a strong determination to a proper Bible doctrine and a purity of worship, they somehow forgot that love must be the basis of it all. All of God's word, including his laws and commandments, are based on the principle that Messiah taught in Matthew 22. There he is asked, which is the greatest commandment of the law? He responds, it is to love your God with all of your heart, soul, and might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These were not new instructions coming from Christ. They were ancient. They come from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. The Ten Commandments rest upon this principle of love. The remaining 603 commandments rest upon those first ten. That's the structure. Essentially, the law of Moses teaches us what loving God and loving our fellow man amounts to and what it does not. So just as important as consistently looking into the mirror of God's word to see if we are being obedient to it is also looking to see if we are doing it in the spirit of love that is the word's foundation and its underlying principle. Well now in verse 5 a stern warning is issued from the one who can back up that warning with action. God says the Ephesians need to look back to before they fell and to turn from this sin or their menorah is going to be removed. Now I don't think, frankly, the complete Jewish Bible does a very good job as it could on this verse translation. So here's a little bit better one from the King James Version that I think is much more true to the Greek. In Revelation 2.5, I think a better reading is, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now I prefer this translation because it properly uses the words repent and do the first works. 
It also adds back in the word quickly to explain that there's little time to write this ship at all. Especially the issue, you know, of doing works is problematic to much of the Western much of Western Christianity. Because works are wrongly characterized as an enemy of grace. But here God is plainly demanding concrete action. Demonstrated first by a change of heart, repentance, followed by a change of behavior, doing the first works. And since the pertinent issue is the loss of operating in the spirit of love that the Ephesians were at first initially displaying, then we see that recapturing that love must manifest itself first in spirit, then in action. One without the other is not acceptable to the Lord. Now for the scary part. The consequence of disobedience to this warning is God removing the menorah from its place. Now the menorah, lampstand in most English Bibles, symbolizes God's light, or better enlightenment. Removing the menorah from its place means God's guiding light is removed, and therefore the congregation will cease to exist as part of the body of Christ. It may certainly remain as a social group of nice people. But God has removed himself from identifying with it. It is notable that God says that not practicing our faith in love is sin. But this sin is so serious that if the Ephesians don't turn from it, God's going to remove them from his presence. Now notice that the divine being didn't step away from the menorah. He banished it away from himself. Is this a sin for which there is no atonement in Christ? An unforgivable sin? Might that be because trying to practice a faith without love means to God we aren't practicing an authentic faith based on redemption in Yeshua a redemption that is itself based upon love now while I can't say with absolute certainty it is my opinion that this may well mean a loss of salvation others say it just means that this particular assembly of believers can't serve God anymore. Well, that makes no sense to my mind. I mean, because if a believer has been pushed far enough away from God by God, <laughs> so that he can no longer serve or identify with the Lord, hasn't the essential purpose and evidence of being redeemed been removed? Is not the light of God internal to us in the form of the Holy Spirit? So if the light of God is extinguished in us, 
the Holy Spirit's no longer present in us. And if the Holy Spirit is gone, then the supreme indicator of our redemption in Messiah Yeshua is gone. Either way, the punishment for attempting to follow God's laws and commandments without pursuing them in the spirit of love is extremely serious and dangerous. In verse 6, interestingly, God returns to offering commendation by saying that at least the Ephesians hate what the Nicolaitans do, which is in tune with God because he says he hates it too. What do the Nicolaitans do? <laughs> Who are the Nicolaitans? I can tell you there is no consensus of scholarship as to exactly what this is indicating. Now one train of thought is that this is speaking to clericalism. That is, that the Nicolaitans were all about creating and maintaining rigid doctrines above all else. And in addition, that the church leadership held themselves up as the highest authority, even as being um, in regular communication with God. Now, while I don't know this for sure, this sure smells a great deal like some Protestant theologians taking a shot at Catholicism and the Pope. I can't find any evidence that this is the sense of the word Nicolaitans. Now, the most popular view, or at least the next most popular, is that this has to do with the Gentile convert Nicholas that we find in Acts 2. 6.5, who lived in Antioch. And the thought is, at this point, uh, is that at some point he must have started a cult that got named the Nicolaitans and they taught wicked things and tried to infect Christ's followers with his teachings. Again, this is pure speculation. There's absolutely no evidence to back this up. However, as more Christian scholars have become persuaded to reopen the Old Testament and to understand Jewish culture better, another solution has come to light that I think seems very fruitful. It's been noticed that in Hebrew, in order to say the phrase, we will eat, very simple phrase, we will eat, the verb nokal would have been used, nokal. And an example of this can be found in Isaiah 4.1 where we read, On that day seven women will seize one man saying, We will eat, no call, our own bread. Provide our own clothing, just let us be called by your name, take away our disgrace. Now it's common among languages huh, to take a word from one language and transfer it to another language. The goal is to make that foreign word sound very similar in another language and also to make the meaning similar. In English, where we find the term that Nicolaitans, it is translating the Greek term Tone Nicolaitan. Tone Nicolaitans. So the intent is to describe a group of people. Well, let me back up. You hear the, 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 I hope, the sound of the words. Again, Greek, Nicolaiton. And what do we say in English? 
nicolaitan, right? We just transferred it right on over. Now we changed a couple of vowels and consonants around to fit our alphabet better. But that's what we did. So we have this intent now, I believe, to describe a group of people that had become known as the we will eat people. The we will eat folks. A special group of people. And they saw themselves as we will eat. That was their motto. So in a sense, their base doctrine was they're going to eat whatever they want to including forbidden food, such as food offered to pagan idols. This new study of what's called Hebraisms, or Hebrew sayings, found in both the Old and the New Testaments, has been developed as a means to help us better understand some phrases in the Bible that up to now have been very hard to get a solid grip on. And it is very likely that this is exactly what we're seeing with the term the Nicolaitans. They were teaching wrong doctrine that would have permitted believers to eat anything without restriction. And God says, I hate it. Now verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. See, this is another example of a Hebraism, a Jewish saying. He who has an ear, let him hear. That's just a Jewish expression. Not only does it occur in all seven letters, but also Yeshua said it. He used it during his earthly ministry. Find it, for example, in Matthew 13. Long before him, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all used it. It is just basically an encouragement to pay attention to what God says and then to do it. It's also said with the intent to shock a God worshiper out of their lethargy into action. You know, it's grabbing their lapels and shaking them a little bit. And so it fits very well. But the background of Revelation is a book that announces impending judgment. Just as divine judgment was the background of the books Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Almost all prophets for that matter. Perhaps this is a good time to repeat something I said earlier. Keep this for the next several weeks. All of these letters are to believers. To believers. Not to the world at large. So verse 7 concludes with, Let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To use modern Christianese, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now the final words of verse 7 require profoundly serious attention by the reader. That's us. Depending on your English Bible version, those words will say, to him winning the victory or to him who overcomes. The idea is that the believer or the assembly of believers, corporately, conquers their shortcomings and sins and turns back to God. That's the victor. That's the overcomer. In the case of the Ephesians, they must regain the spirit of love that they used to have, but they've set it aside in their lives. 
And for those who do, look look at it yourself. The reward is what? They will be allowed to eat from the tree of life. What does eating from the tree of life give us? Eternal life with God. In fact, the reference at the end of verse 7 to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden is meant as a direct allusion to Genesis 3, verses 22 and 23. Listen to those verses. Adonai God said, See, this man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now to prevent his putting out his hand and taking from the tree of life and eating and living forever, therefore God Adonai sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. Especially for those who depend upon the once saved, always saved doctrine. The reward for the believer at Ephesus who repents and changes, conquers their wrong heart attitude and subsequent physical behavior is going to be eternity. So conversely then, what happens to those who don't overcome this sin? The God has said he will not tolerate. A time out? They get a little slap on the wrist? No. Obviously, if the one group will eat from the tree of life, what happens to the other group? They don't get to eat from the tree of life that gives eternal life. And since this entire message, over and over it's repeated, is to believers, those who are presumably saved, then for them to not receive eternal life for refusing to correct their ways means only one thing a loss of their salvation and the allusion to Genesis 3 is most appropriate because just as the Lord threatens Ephesus with removing their menorah and distancing himself from them what did God do with Adam? Adam was removed from the Garden of Eden where the tree of life resides to put distance between him and God. We're going to take up that second letter that will be addressed to the angel of the believing congregation at Smyrna next time.